It's go time. CFL has aligned the global draft with its regular entry draft. That's a topic of discussion we're going to be hitting tonight here on Third Down Gamble's Quick Kicks. Hi, everybody. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. Pat is away this week. Heath, your thoughts on the alignment of draft days with the global draft going at noon Eastern and then the regular CFL entry draft going that night the two drafts are seven hours apart i love the format i think the global draft and the global position players is something that i've enjoyed so far in the cfl experiment and i want to see it continue to grow and i am very interested to see what types of players these teams are drafting in this global draft and what kind of holes they're looking to fill prior to drafting those u-sport athletes I listened to um, the Turf District. They had uh, a former receiver with the BC Lions, who's now their assistant GM, G. Roy Simon, as a guest. And he alluded to the fact that it does change things up for administration and recruiting. Essentially, from what I can gather, is that you were working in tandem on these two drafts if they were on separate dates or if they wound up to be the same date anyway. So... It, it just means that it, it's a longer day on draft day. One thing to keep in mind is the, the focus is going to still be more on the Canadian content in that draft. The number of players required from each of these drafts to be on your roster changes pretty severely when you compare the global players versus Canadian non-import talent on your roster, if you will. So we know that front of mind is going to be those Canadian players who is best going to fit the needs. And then for the global players, you're trying to find somebody that's going to find a spot. We've seen a lot of special teams players so far and a couple of standouts in the kicking game, as well as really Winnipeg has a defensive lineman that does not look out of place on a defensive line. Looking at who participated in the Global Combine Day, there's a lot of defensive backs, there's a bunch of defensive linemen, some wide receivers, and it's going to be really interesting to see if a a global wide receiver can crack a CFL roster this year. What we're hoping to see even out of the regular entry draft with the Canadian content that we're going to see, we saw Jake Burt last year who was uh, sort of a hybrid tight end, drafted first overall by the Tiger Cats. We're starting to see the move away from offensive linemen in the first round, that the the teams are looking for a different skill set, whether it's defensive back, running back, or receiver. We have yet to really see a quarterback go very, very high. Will Trey Ford be that and become a first-round quarterback pick? He very well could be, and I know we discussed in our last episode about where he fits into an NFL scheme as well. So I think the CFL coaches and scouting teams and general managers are going to be very focused on that NFL draft to see what kind of look he's going to get and what the probabilities are of him making an NFL roster. And do they have a chance to get him onto a CFL team? And do you take him in that first round when you've got that opportunity? The Elks 
in the two drafts seem to be in the driver's seat because they've got the first pick overall in the Canadian draft. They've got the second pick overall in the global draft. The Alouettes have the first pick in the global draft. It's a three-round draft for the Globals, six rounds for the Canadians later that night. A lot of talent will be picked up. I was watching on YouTube a vintage uh, Winnipeg-Calgary game from 2001, and it was Doug Brown's first game with the Blue Bombers. Brown had been drafted by the Stampeders, and he had spent two years in the NFL, and when he came back, the Stampeders and the Blue Bombers made a trade, and Mike Labingo was the player that the Stampeders would eventually pick up. Pretty even up trade in terms of talent, but... Uh, Doug Brown could have been a Stampeder and won two Grey Cups there. <laughs> he could have been, but I would say it worked out really well for both him and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. He had a, a heck of a, a career on that defensive line, and he has now moved into the color commentator role for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on the radio as well. So things have worked out for Doug. He seems happy in Winnipeg and a real part of that community. But you're right, what could have been if he had stuck with the Stampeders? It's the what ifs, and this is the the joy, I think, of the draft in so many ways. We Let's dig into Trey Ford a little bit further and what teams he might be a fit on and who might be looking for that that first round draft pick of a quarterback in this draft. You look at a team, the defending Great Cup champs in Winnipeg, we know Zach Caleros isn't going to be there forever and they don't really have much on deck, if you will. So that might be a team that would, would give him a look. We see the BC Lions have already gone to a two-Canadian quarterback system. Is that another team that's willing to give him a look to continue that that depth? Or is there another team out there that you think might be a landing spot for him? It really comes down to who has what pick when. Edmonton has the first pick, Ottawa second, BC third, Montreal fourth, Calgary fifth. In any of those five, most likely I think would be Alouettes at number four, but you skip down to number six and Toronto might be very interested because there's somebody from in the neighborhood and, I mean, you can promote the beans out of him if he makes the roster. That might be a very interesting fit for him. And we also haven't been 100% sold on McLeod Bethel-Thompson as the quarterback of the future for the Toronto Argonauts. So that might be a great fit and, and somebody willing to take that chance and see what develops. On 3-Down Nation, John Hodges come out with his mock draft version 2.0. And what's interesting to me as we look at the uh, CFL entry draft is that offensive linemen do not feature in the top five. He's got, as I indicated, Trey Ford going to the Argonaut. It is interesting because we've seen in the past how offensive line heavy pun intended the opening rounds of the cfl draft are everybody loads up on that offensive line talent and and hopes they find one that's going to become a starter within a couple of seasons and now we're seeing some skill players where we've got terrell richards a linebacker as the projected number one overall a defensive lineman a receiver a receiver a defensive back and a quarterback so it looks like it's a real movement towards speed as opposed to bulk in the opening round of the CFL draft. Well, it's got to be a head scratcher for some people when you see Canadian receivers, linebackers wind up in the NFL and they're not playing here. 
I keep coming back to Trey Ford, but if the NFL is interested in a, in a U-sport quarterback, that, that speaks volumes about what's happening at U-sport. As we mentioned, there's a couple of receivers projected to go in the top four positions. There is huge value in Canadian receivers in the league. We, we know the Canadian content is generally offense-heavy, but you see the importance and and we've seen teams go with even two or three receivers that are Canadian and how, how much impact they can have. And, and you look at somebody that the Riders had for a number of years in, in Chris Getzlaff was a, a huge Canadian talent and developed and hometown boy. And what a positive spin it was to have him in Ryder Green for all of those years. I, it's exciting to see and, and there's some very skilled and very fast players that are going to get a look. And some of them have had experience in the U.S. college system. We'll see how that translates into the CFL game at the professional level. And the Elks have just signed a Canadian quarterback, Mike Beaudre, who played with the Idaho Vandals. He played in Connecticut. As you commented just before we went on, you said there are seven quarterbacks that are going to be in camp in Edmonton. Are there enough footballs in the bag for these guys to all chuck? I, I don't believe there are, and I would be surprised if seven of them last more than one day at camp. Chris Jones is obviously willing to take a look at all of these players, see what he's got. And as weird as it might sound, once again, Nick Arbuckle might be the odd man out and moving on to yet another team. He's quickly become kind of the journeyman of the CFL and we'll see if, if that holds true and if he's on his way somewhere out of Edmonton. It would be interesting because if only for this, that they did pay him his $100,000 bonus. So you've already invested it in him. They, they have an incentive laden contract for JT Barrett. There is going to be a lot of interesting sort of everyday commentary about what is going to happen next in that team. You've got an incumbent quarterback. Taylor Cornelius that played a few snaps last year at times looked good at times maybe through the odd interception it's just amazing that there's that many people that would be at the pivot position to challenge and one interesting side note of that of all of the quarterbacks that are headed to the Elks camp Nick Arbuckle is the oldest one at 28 years of age so we're looking at a youth movement for quarterbacks in Edmonton coming up this season the old regime had their faith in one quarterback Taylor Cornelius, he may not be that quarterback of the future. So one of the other quarterbacks that the Elks are bringing to camp is Khalil Tate, who has a little bit of NFL experience. He signed with the Philadelphia Eagles as an undrafted free agent um, and was on a reserves futures contract before he was released in the summer of 2021. A little bit smaller probably for the NFL at six feet tall and just over 200 pounds, but he might be a, a type of quarterback that can thrive in a CFL environment if given the right opportunity. If you need size, Cornelius is the guy that has size. Other than Arbuckle, he's got CFL experience. That's a lot of humanity. I just don't know if, if all of them get a fair shake. We talked about this a bit last season with all of the free agent signings in Toronto and who was going to get a look. There certainly... It's going to be a healthy competition, but I can't see it lasting for too long. I think it's going to be a situation where if somebody shows up a little bit out of shape or has a rough first day at camp, Jones is going to send them packing. Of course, incumbent upon training camp being available to actually assess these people, 
is an agreement with the CFLPA on new contract with the uh, Canadian Football League. At least for now, it looks like the two sides have gotten off to a good start, according to Dan Ralph. They've kind of agreed on what we would describe as secondary issues for the most part. It's just a question now of the cap, what you do with the salaries of global players, and length of contract. And and by length of contract, it's it's a twofold thing. One is the length of the contract with the CBA, which some people are pushing for a longer tour. The second is length of contract for players, because right now I think two is the max. If you want to extend that, what kind of incentives can you lay down for each side that would make them want to stay? Nothing kills momentum of a professional sport more than a work stoppage. We saw a threat this year of Major League Baseball not getting off to a great start. They did end up canceling the first couple of series of the season. And I think cooler heads prevailed in that situation and they realized that they could not drag that out any longer than it was already going without damaging the season and the league as a whole. And the CFL is in the same boat. If they can come to terms on a longer CBA, it certainly is to the benefit of everybody. I am completely in favor of longer contracts if we can work something out where we're looking at guys signing on average three-year contracts or possibly even longer. It builds that recognition, that team loyalty. You don't feel bad buying a jersey with a guy's name on it and hoping he's going to be around one more year. You know he's likely to be there for two or three more. And it, it just is a goldmine for marketing on the local team's front and as a league as a whole. It is not unheard of that they come to the last hour or in fact go beyond the May 14th deadline that they have for this old contract to expire. Of course, a a huge question is going to be, given what has happened with the CFL in the last two years, how far can you move the cap up? At 5.35 million that it is right now, I know the CFLPA would love to see it grow, but the CFL has taking a, taken a massive hit the last two years, a cancelled season and a shortened season where in some places they couldn't even start with fans in the stands. That just impacted your bottom line time and time and time again. Now, they did climb out of it towards Grey Cup and we saw stadiums fill up again, but there's no way that teams made money in 2021. How hard do you plead poverty, given that you've got Genius Sports coming online and online betting or single game betting coming online? The CFL is kind of in a, a contractual sort of malaise in a sense, because you got to be careful at how much poverty you plead, because there's a potential that this other side could grow exponentially. I believe they have to err on the side of caution for this upcoming season with potential to grow year after year as the CBA goes on. If they can sign a longer agreement and look at incremental increases to that salary cap, it's probably the way to go. But you're right, the financial hardships of the league and of these teams over the last two seasons can't be ignored. And we we can't imagine that they have fully recovered or are in the same position financially as they were in 2018 and 2019. They could look at, I guess, in one sense, tying the cap to revenues. 
I wonder if there's just some way that you could make a formula that as revenues grow, the cap would grow by that same percentage. That's probably the way to go. We have heard Commissioner Randy Ambrosi discuss some revenue sharing to make it a more even playing field for all of the teams involved as well. For the success of the league to continue, and I know we've talked about this before, we can't look at the league as nine independent teams wanting to do nine independent things. They need to band together, be consistent on this, and look at how to grow the product, grow fan engagement across the league. If Toronto continues to struggle to get fans, it hurts the Winnipegs, the Calgarys, the Saskatchewans of the CFL as well, and we need to take that into consideration when they are working on these contracts and these bargaining agreements. We we need healthy franchises and health, healthy fan bases in all nine of these, and hopefully at some point in the not-too-distant future, all 10 of these franchises and these homes. The question of the cap coming up in negotiations with player contract ex- extensions and let's point immediately to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, Jeremy O'Day, and their starting quarterback, Cody Fajardo. They're not even in negotiation about an extension to his contract. GMs were pretty quick to sign players to contracts when the free agent window opened up this year. However, it is quite the mathematical formula to fit everybody in. And how far in the future is he willing to bank on Cody Fajardo and his worth right now when he doesn't know what that cap is? I have to believe that he's got some numbers in mind that he's going to present when he feels the opportunity is there. Or is it a question of Fajardo has to go out, perform, get them to the Grey Cup, then that's when the contract comes. If he doesn't and he's not satisfied that Fajardo is going to be the player to take them to the promised land, then maybe you don't offer that extension anyway. This is kind of a polite way of saying it's an audition that's coming up for Fajardo. True. Okay, but let's let's look at it this way. Let's say Fajardo does lead the Rough Riders to another hometown Grey Cup victory. Then how does O'Day fit him in? What kind of raise is he looking at by becoming that, that hero in Saskatchewan already? And now you're probably costing yourself maybe a hundred to a couple hundred thousand dollars a year because you were hesitant to sign them early. That's the risk that you take regardless in a negotiation. Now, to be fair to Fajardo, he's taken the team to two straight West finals. He makes no bones that he wants to be a rough rider for the long term. So is it a comfort zone issue with O'Day and saying, well, I don't have to negotiate because I'm fairly confident he would sign and we'll just work this out when the time comes and we don't have to worry about too, too much, but he does want that cap sort of resolved so he understands how much is available. Well, Fajardo does say he wants to be part of the Rough Riders organization for the long haul, and I believe him. How long can he be strung along before he starts to feel bitter about that? We know he was one of many stars in the CFL that renegotiated contracts for the 2021 season and took a bit of a pay cut in order to get the team where they needed to be. So we know he's a team guy, but At the same time, he has to feel that respect coming from the other side. And if O'Day isn't willing to step up right now, how does that leave him feeling? And and where does he feel like he fits into the organization? To be fair about the contract, he gave up some salary for some bonus. And the way the tax laws are, bonus is taxed at a far less rate. So he probably evened up on the long run, even though the actual total money was a little bit less for the Rough Riders to pay. 
it probably in in his pocket meant almost the same. There's always a caveat to this sort of stuff when a player gives up salary but gets extra bonus. If Fajardo starts to wonder if they are going to come up with a contract for him, if this affects him on the field, are you doing yourself any favors by not deciding early that he's our man? I think we have to look no further than 600 kilometers down the Trans-Canada Highway to Winnipeg and the Andrea Harris situation. Uh, a similar situation where you had a, a star player loyal to the team. He led them to two championships, not just to two West Finals, but he was a key part in winning two Grey Cups. And he feels very slighted by the way he was treated by the organization on his way out the door. He's gone to Toronto now with something to prove and this is going to be a very telling season to determine whether the Bombers were right to let him go or whether he was right to walk away mad and show them that he he still has a lot left in the tank. The situation with Harris is fascinating because as you move away from the free agent signing in Toronto, you start to hear more and more and more about what was going on. And Willie Jefferson actually came out and spoke to this, that he thought that it was close to being a done deal, that they didn't weren't worrying about Harris coming back. And the next thing you know, he's he's free agent and in, signing with the Argonauts. Very interesting. And, and it boils down to what I've said before, is there's three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. And we've definitely heard Andrew Harris's side of the story. We've heard a little bit from Kyle Walters and the Bombers front office but at the same time they are very cautious in what they say and rightfully so and then somewhere in the middle is the truth of what happened in that negotiation and why we're going to see Andrew Harris in the double blue and not the blue and gold it's it's like you say there's always three sides to any story it's going to be interesting Uh, we've got I mean Last year, Trevor Harris was supposed to be the man in Edmonton, and now he's in Montreal. Jeremiah Mazzoli almost pulls off a Grey Cup victory in in Hamilton. Now he's in Ottawa. It's a real sort of a tough situation when you're doing well, you're getting the team to where you need to be, and then... One of the things to consider, too, is the money that we're tossing around here isn't life-changing, set-you-up-for-the-rest-of-your-life kind of money like you see in other sports leagues where you're either siding with multi-million dollar players or multi-billion dollar owners and, and who are you more sympathetic to. In the CFL, players have to make money while they can because it's not a huge amount that they are going to be getting. But at the same time, the teams and the organizations have to be very fiscally responsible in order to survive. And I think that's what we're seeing in some of these moves of players who've ended up in different situations is at the end of the day, financially, the teams have to make a decision. And and Hamilton is a great example of that where they had Dane Evans and Jeremiah Mazzoli. They managed to get them both under contract for the 2021 season, but given what they had accomplished on the field, there's no way they could afford to bring both of them back. And we see that in other examples across the league as well. Speaking of the Tiger Cats, they signed Mark Washington and Tommy Condell. They sort of up their contracts, which I think Hamilton is sort of succession planning with the idea that maybe Steinhauer won't be there forever and we need somebody to replace him. And I think that's quite astute on their part. It is. There was rumors that Orlando Steinhauer was going to be gone after the Grey Cup and looking at a college opportunity in the U.S. He has agreed to sign for one more run at it here in in Hamilton. But uh, 
signing those other con- those other coaches to extensions and into an assistant role yeah. is very key and and that succession planning is something that more teams I think need to get better at and we saw something similar with Winnipeg and how they brought Buck Pierce along to follow in Paul Lapolis's footsteps as the offensive coordinator we're seeing even in other administrative roles where G Roy Simon has been kind of groomed into that that general manager role and those are the types of things that I love to see in the league and love to see that development and that planning for the future. Well speaking of planning for the future the British Columbia Lions have got to be wondering is this deja vu all over again. Last year they had Leroy Blue as their defensive line coach and he left for personal reasons and now this is as of a couple weeks ago but Henry Burris had signed to help with the offense and now he's in Jacksonville. The uh, the Lions have got to be wondering, like, what is going on? A tough one for them. And, and in my opinion, BC is a great opportunity team right now. They've got some salary cap room to bring some players in. They've got two up-and-coming Canadian quarterbacks. There's some excitement. They've got an outstanding wide receiver core. And the player that you said should have been the most outstanding player of the league last year there's there's lots of reason to be excited about the BC Lions and I can't quite understand why some of these coaches aren't taking a look at that and and taking advantage of what's laid out before them. It's a great question. I don't think there's an, a, a sort of an agenda on these coaches that they're not going to BC. It's just a fluke that it happened twice in a row that a defensive coach one year, an offensive coach the next year, aren't available to you when you thought you had them. Every team, I guess, on some level goes through this once in a while. You just don't expect it back to back. That's a tough one to take. Absolutely. CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. USFL is starting on Saturday night. What do you think? What do you, the USFL is back there. They're pushing some of the spring league rules to be used again. I'm just not sure what this will come to be as its revamped entity. I guess I would be excited as well as if I lived in Birmingham and was able to watch an entire pro league play every game in my backyard. It would be a great opportunity Tickets are as low as $10 and kids get in free. So the value there to go watch a game is is through the roof. We've seen a lot of spring football leagues and a lot of comp- competitive football leagues come and go over the last, well, if we go back to the original USFL, we're going back decades. But certainly in the last few years, there's been a lot of tried and failed leagues and to me the biggest takeaway the biggest deterrent to the usfl's success is that they're only playing the games in birmingham i don't see how you grow a fan base for a league even though you've got your name your your city like the houston gamblers for example okay people in houston can see a team with their name on it i don't feel like they're going to get that connection to the players and to the franchise when they're playing all of their games elsewhere it, it is a very difficult situation. It's an interesting little trivia tidbit. This is the first time since the first 
AFL-NFL championship game that two major networks are sharing the broadcast. Back then it was CBS and NBC. This is now Fox and NBC. Interested, I guess, from that perspective as well to see how the, how the, uh, the two networks cover and how things go. If there is an opportunity for this league to be successful, it's because they've got these two networks behind them. At the same time, the original XFL had backing from, I believe, NBC at that time. And the viewership dropped to such a point that they were basically giving away the broadcast rights to keep it on TV. If the fan base isn't there, I don't know how long Fox and NBC are going to be willing to hang on to it. I don't even know how much money is being outlaid now. And especially in the United States, it seems like TV money really drives professional sport. And if you don't have that big contract, if you're the NBA, Major League Baseball, or let's face it, the NFL, what are you? As I mentioned about having no home games in your own city, they aren't established enough to do that, in my opinion. We saw during COVID times, the Toronto Blue Jays played almost an entire season before they got back to Rogers Centre. But they were also a 43-year-old franchise that has built that fan base and that loyalty and people were excited when they finally got back into Canada and able to play those games. We saw similar with the NBA bubble and the Toronto Raptors not being able to get home. But again, it's a well-established league. It's a well-established franchise. So when you're starting from scratch and you're not getting those players into the community, you, there's no meet and greet in New Orleans with the, with the players from the Breakers. You're not building that connection with the, with the kids you're not building that family environment that people are going to be drawn to. And it's only watching it on TV. And I guess they're hoping that it's going to draw those football gamblers that are going to be interested and maybe try to build it from there. But I just don't see fan engagement being something that's going to be successful in nurturing this league. The last time the original USFL played a game was in the mid-1980s. If you had any allegiance to any of those teams then, if you were 15, you're over 50 now. There's nobody that's been born in the last 35 years that other than hearing about it a little bit that have ever seen a USFL game. They're, they're almost as if they're almost a brand new league. There is going to be somebody in Birmingham this weekend walking through the stadium wearing a vintage USFL Doug Flutie jersey. And it is going to be great to see, but there's probably only going to be one of them. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio. Worth watching.